0: It says week nine, I guess this is week eleven.
1: Whatever it is. And anyway. It's a week.
0: The ninth the ninth prophet. Uh Micah. So <clears throat> uh the name Micah means who is like the Lord. And uh as you can read in verse one, it's he's from uh Moresheth, which was a small town in Judah. He uh gave his prophecies. Uh, during the reigns, we're, we're told of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in Judah. Uh, so the the dates we're not 100% sure, but it's some it's it's at most from 750 to 686 BC, at least uh, 735 to 715. So at a minimum, a 20-year uh, time span of of preaching. Um, so one of the interesting things is that when you look at the dates, then you'll see that uh, he lived to see the fall of Samaria and the fall of Israel to Assyria. So some of what he's prophesying, he actually saw come to fruition. Um, also, the other thing that we wanted to note here at the front end is that uh, while, um, while we might say that his primary ministry was in Judah, because that's where he was from, he actually offers prophecies with regard to the north, uh, Israel, and with regard to the southern kingdom, Judah. Uh, so you see that in, in both. Okay, so this next slide, we're just reminding you that, that sometimes the prophets do strange things, or things that that seem uh, quite odd, um, things we wouldn't want, you know, any ministers to do today, uh, as, as acts that are Uh, acting out um, the prophecy or the message that they have or something related to or to uh, help people remember the message. So in 1.8, we're told that he would go about barefoot and naked. So if you've been wondering why the picture of Micah was like this, where he looks naked, well, that's why. Uh, And that is to represent the shame of God's people. As you know, in uh, in the Middle East, there's a lot of it. There's a shame culture there. And uh, nakedness is particularly seen as particularly shameful. And uh, and it's degrading to the family name. So for him to go about naked, and and, you know, if you're asking about the details, I'm not sure if he was wearing maybe a small undergarment. But nevertheless, whatever he did, it was designed to evoke this notion of shame. Also, he shaves his head uh, and goes about with uh, a shaved head as a sign of lament, and he walks about crying out uh, in in lament for the sins of the people, both Israel, again, and Judah, and also uh, presumably for the exiles that he is going to prophesy and so that he has seen.
1: So, um, so in, in chapter one, then after he is, Um, he declares, uh, you know, that judgment will come on the north, on the north and the south. Um, he has this kind of catalog of cities. And this is the kind of thing that when we're, uh, reading through the Bible, we see all these cities that are unfamiliar. And we just sort of skip over that and move on to, you know, kind of the things that we, that we understand. But when that happens, you should ask yourself, why is this catalog of cities there? Um, and, and so what's happening here, um, and I won't go through all of them because you have them there on the slide, but what's happening here is that there is this wordplay. This is an, another um, poetic device that we see in Micah. Um, and, uh, we have kind of a parenthesis within a parenthesis. So, um, the outer parenthesis that I'd say we have is that uh, Micah is, is lamenting. So, um, verse eight is sort of like the opening and verse, um, 16 is like the closing. So those both have to do with lament, but then on the inside of that, um, there, there are these, these cities and, um, uh, it starts with a reference to King David and then it ends with another reference to King David. Okay. And then in between these cities represent a number of cities that kind of stand in the path of the Assyrian invasion. And so when Assyria sweeps down towards, um, you know, towards Samaria and towards Jerusalem, it's going to sweep through all of these cities and it's going to destroy them. And so what happens is um, mm-hmm. each one of these cities, Its name means something, and so what um, Micah is doing is he takes each one's name and he kind of turns it into something negative, okay? So I'm not going to go through all of them, but you can see um, all of their meanings, all of their definitions. And so um, if we were to read through a couple of verses, it would be kind of like this. Um, First of all, in verse 10, it says, don't announce it in gath. Well, don't announce it in Gath is something that David said at the death of Saul and Jonathan. And he basically said, don't, don't talk about this too loudly because we don't want the Philistines to, you know, gloat over our loss, you know, over our defeat. And so when Micah says this, he's sort of quoting from David, um, like, don't, don't tell it abroad that Assyria has come in and defeated us, um, because we don't want our enemy to gloat over us. And so, um, as he goes through these cities, uh, the first one, Leafra, house of dust. So it's like, roll in the dust, house of dust. Um, depart in shame, residents of pleasantness. It'll be unpleasant for you. The residents of coming out will not come out. So Zainan sounds like come out. Okay? They won't come out. Um, Beth Ezel, which means house of protection, uh, is lamenting because it will not offer any protection. You know, And so and so on it goes like that, just kind of turning them. Um, if we go to 13, harness the horses to the chariot, residents of Lachish. Well, Lakish sounds kind of like the word for team, La Rakesh, a team of horses. And he says there, this was the beginning of sin for daughter Zion. Uh, Israel's rebellion started there. This kind of, rep- well, okay. Lachish was a huge fortified city and it represents, um, military prowess, it represents their reliance on their own military strength, and therefore their, you know, disreliance on God, and so this is a a form of their rebellion, okay, Um, and so, you know, on it goes um, with the others, until the very end, where it has the little city of Adulam. And it says, um, the nobility of Israel will come to Adulam. Well, Adulam is a place where there was a cave where David ran to hide. He ran away from Saul to hide there. And others uh, kind of came to him to form a group and, uh, to, and to support him. And so in the end, after all the defeats of these, these cities and their fortunes are, are overturned and, and reversed, that finally all the nobles will run away and hide in a cave. And so... This is kind of the closing um, parenthesis, and then the lament comes again uh, on top of that. Shave yourselves bald and cut off your hair in sorrow because your children have perished. All right. That's the poem of the day. I'm sorry. It's rather depressing. Oh, we can't go on the next slide. Okay. Well, our our slide is pausing for some reason.
0: That's right. I found okay. Go.
1: Oh, got it. Okay.
0: All right.
1: Okay, so the next two chapters kind of go together. They sort of cover the same um, same sorts of themes together. So uh, there's a um, economic and social injustice that we see, um, re- a rejection of God's message and of God's messengers, the prophets, and also embracing false prophets, so false religious teachers, and um, corrupt political leaders. With uh, twisted thought processes or, or perversion. Instead of working justice, they work perversion, they pervert justice. And then um, we see that many of these charges emerge again uh, with some more uh, kind of specific examples in chapter six, but they begin to come up here in chapters two and chapter three. And so we're headed towards the judgment and destruction of Jerusalem.
0: Yeah, so Micah's laying out uh, some of his complaints against uh the religious and political leaders uh so you, are you are you noticing a theme an ongoing theme with these prophets um, so the charges against the uh religious and political leaders are they take advantage of the people they use their position to rob the people of of their um, of their hard earned money or or uh property. Uh, property. Um, religious leaders use religion for their own gain and their own purposes, uh, whether they be uh, personal gain or they be their own political agendas. Uh, nevertheless, they're twisting truth for, uh, for, their, own, um, for their own purposes. Uh, and I think, you know, in some cases, if you think about that in modern times, we, we can think of a number of examples of that sort of thing. Uh, I thought of um, some of the jihadists that we uh, see out in, in, uh, you know, in, in the world who uh, coax gullible, usually uneducated and uh, economically disadvantaged young men to go blow themselves up for Allah while they themselves are not willing to sacrifice much of anything. And they'll, they use the Quran to, to those purposes for their own gain. And, of course, we could probably think of some examples uh, on this side of the ocean as well. Um, the leaders abhor justice and twist what is straight. Um, I thought of some, you know, a number of examples when you think of, like, twisted thought, where the, the way these political leaders, the way they administer in uh, the government, is just so backwards. It seems like things are almost upside down. Uh, So, you know, again, a number of examples we could probably think of. I'll just give one that's I think probably all of us would agree with. Um, You have a number of states that have what's called feticide laws, um, whereby if someone were to uh, uh, hurt or injure uh, a woman who's pregnant so that she loses the child, that the... um, the perpetrator can be charged with murder Um, yet those same states of course allow and sometimes even promote abortion and so you have this it's illegal to kill the baby in the womb if the mother wants it but then it's perfectly legal for her of her own choice to do this seems odd right it seems like there's a contra or a conflict there between those ideas um and other examples of course perhaps like revolving doors in Washington between political uh, political leaders or judiciary leaders, uh, big business, lobbying organizations, think tanks. These people make the rounds between these, uh, between these positions and they're all kind of in bed together. Uh, there are some cases of that that have been documented and uh, this is just twisted and this is the kind of thing that uh, Micah is speaking out, against.
1: And as we look at the rejection of God's message and his messengers, you'll notice how in um, chapter two, just like in Amos, when um, uh, the priest at Bethel tried to shut him down and shut down his preaching, um, Micah is also rejected and he's told, quit your preaching. You should not preach these things. This kind of disaster, like this is false. This kind of disaster will never overtake us And um, by the way, this preaching of Micah is cited in um, Jeremiah. Jeremiah quotes directly from Micah about exactly the destruction of Jerusalem. And the the point in Jeremiah's life where this becomes very relevant um, and, and where this quote comes in is where Jeremiah is in trouble. And, um, uh, people want to kill him. And, um, some elders stand up and they say, we can't kill him for this. We shouldn't kill him for this kind of prophecy. This is exactly the same prophecy that Micah of Morisheth gave in the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah didn't kill him. This is in uh, Jeremiah 26. You can read about this. And so, um, Micah of Morisheth, uh, had the same message um, that, uh, that Jeremiah was preaching and Jeremiah had people to advocate for him and his life was spared. His life was saved. Um, but Micah's shut down. Jeremiah was shut down. Amos was shut down. This seems to be the fate of a lot of the prophets. And by contrast, Micah says, you know, if somebody came along preaching about, you know, having a good time and about, you know, uh, beer and wine, um, that would be just the kind of preacher that, that you want. And so the, um, the uh uh, punishment for these for false prophets uh as he says in chapter three is going to be that the seers will see nothing only night only darkness there'll be no word from god and this is what we saw in the other prophets too he said you know you go to bethel i'm not there and i'm not talking to you anymore there's no word from me there so god withdraws and these prophets have nothing to say they have no revelation to share Um, The true prophet as Micah, he says, as for me, I'm filled with the spirit of God. I'm filled with power by the spirit of the Lord with justice and courage. He asserts um, his own call to the ministry and to the prophetic vocation that it is true and it's grounded in a true call of God. And he's preaching a message that's not popular. Um, that people hate him for, and that and, and want to reject him. And nevertheless, just like Jeremiah, he can't help it. He has to because the Lord impels him to do that.
0: So we've seen in in Micah two and three, uh, the prophecy is regarding the present. It's uh, a call to repentance. It's a uh, a threat of judgment and um, and fearsome. Then in chapter four, he there's there's a shift and what we what we see is just like we said before in some of the other prophets you have some interplay between the future and the present and in and in this case we're going to have the far future and then we're going to have the not so far future like 100 years 100 120 years into the future and then uh again into the distant future and then back to the present again so we have this sort of interplay in the prophecies and sometimes with, with very little indication apart from what he's talking about uh, with regard to when these things will take place. Um, So in, in four one, then you have this shift to the distant future with uh, a a talk of a peaceful kingdom, Um, right? The hammering of swords into plowshares, Uh, this statue that is out in the garden at the United Nations depicts that, ideal, right, that ideal of a peaceful kingdom. Um, Interesting, again, Micah is preaching around the same time as Isaiah. He's probably a little younger than Isaiah, so you have this same language in Isaiah, uh, the prophet. So uh, there may be dependence upon Isaiah for uh, this, for example, or it might, uh, like Stefan and I were talking about this, it might have just been something that a number of prophets were preaching and referring to and the language they were using in, in terms of, again, a message of hope, right? We've had judgment, but now we have this message of hope that in the latter days, uh, the mountain of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. Uh, people will flock there. There will be a peaceful kingdom. But then again, in 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 verses 9 through 11 of this same chapter, then we see him shifting to uh, exile to Babylon. So we're back to judgment. So we've had judgment. Then we have uh, a a future restoration and peaceful kingdom, uh, where the Lord will be exalted. And then we have, uh, exile in Babylon in, in verse 10 there. Uh, and then in 12 and 13, we have again, God, a promise of restoration. God will restore Israel, make it strong to defeat the nations. Um, and the people will be able to, so the people can properly worship the Lord, they'll have wealth, they'll have abundance, they'll be able to offer the appropriate sacrifices and offerings to the Lord.
1: And, and rather than the names of their gods in their mouth, they will be the name of Yahweh, kind of like we talked about with a, a previous prophet
0: yeah so again right there'll be a return to the lord a restoration of blessing and uh, a turning from the curses now we wanted to spend honestly the majority a lot of the time on chapter five because uh there's some interesting interesting passages here so in micah 5 1 Uh, If you're able to follow along, he says, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us with a rod. They will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. So the interesting question here is, who is the judge of Israel that will be struck on the cheek with the rod? Um, There is debate among scholars. Does this refer to the immediate context? And so is this Hezekiah, maybe? Maybe who uh, endures a siege under Sennacherib in 701 BC, 2 Kings 19. You can read of this. Uh, But what happens there is the Assyrian army shows up. They taunt uh, the people. They taunt God. They mock God uh, and say other nations haven't been able to, other nations' gods have not been able to rescue them. What makes you think your God can rescue you? He won't. He's impotent. You'll fall. You need to go ahead and surrender. And uh, Hezekiah and Isaiah, with Isaiah's uh, encouragement, they pray, they fast, and an angel comes in the middle of the night and destroys the Assyrian army, kills 185,000 of them, and Sennacherib has to return to Assyria in disgrace. That occurs in about 701. Now, some, think, some scholars think that this refers to Hezekiah and Sennacherib's siege because in, in verse 1, it says, now muster yourselves in troops, like it's raise up the troops right away. Um, so immediate. The The problem with that interpretation, of course, is that Jerusalem did not fall and Hezekiah was not captured and beaten. So the smiting of Hezekiah then would have to be in some way metaphorical uh, for the the pain that he would have felt seeing Jerusalem under siege. Um, Zedekiah and the fall of Jerusalem later under the Babylonians in 586 BC. So again, we're looking, uh, you know, a good 120 years into the future. Uh, That did, you know, that, that, certainly Jerusalem fell, the king was captured, he was tortured and beaten, his eyes were put out after they uh, executed his sons in front of him. And uh, so maybe this is a reference to him. The problem with that, of course, is then it wouldn't fit with the first verse. So there's, there's a bit of debate about exactly who this is. Now, the interesting, I, get, I think the more interesting question for us is, does it apply to Jesus? Is this a messianic prophecy? Um, just, here's a spoiler alert for verse 2. Verse 2 is messianic, so we're going to get to that in just a moment. So, is verse 1? Well, a lot of, a lot of let's say most, commentators don't think so. Um, they'll say, for example, verse 2 starts with the word but as a means of contrasting, showing a shift from verse 1. So they would say verse 1 doesn't apply uh, to the Messiah in the same way verse 2 does. They also use different terms for the leader in verse 1 versus verse 2. In verse 1, it's uh, the judge, the shofet, uh, and in verse 2, it is the ruler, the moselle. So they say because there's a shift in terms, uh, it's probably not the same. It doesn't apply to the same individual. Uh, also, Christ obviously was smitten, but he wasn't smitten by an enemy after the siege of the city, although... Of course, we could we could respond that he was smitten by enemy uh, enemy invaders, Rome, who were considered invaders of Palestine at the time. And they were certainly occupiers. And um, and again, some people would say the now of verse one has to be contrasted with the distant future of the prophecy of verse two. Uh, Well, okay what about the positive? And this is my opinion. Um, First, it's. As we've seen, it's common to have a double meaning in prophecy. So even if it refers to, let's say, uh, Zedekiah, or it refers to uh, Hezekiah, or some other king, um, even if it refers to them, it could still have a, have a future, more full, full fulfillment in Christ later. We know Jesus was struck with a rod. The Gospels specifically mention that. And um, you know, perhaps the gospel writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did specifically mention that because they had this prophecy in mind. Isaiah speaks also of the Messiah being struck, and also refers to the Messiah's face being a uh, an object of the enemy's um, hostility. Right? They rip out his beard, um, and of course, he is also struck by the the uh, the people at the temple, the, the temple guards. Judge of Israel, the term judge of Israel is often used to speak of the Lord himself, God, right? And so if we understand this as possibly being a having a, 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 a final fulfillment in Christ, then the judge of Israel, this would be Christological. And what I mean by that is it gives us an understanding of the meaning of Jesus as Christ, as the Son of God, as also the incarnation of the Lord himself. So the judge of Israel, the Lord, in the person of Jesus Christ, in flesh, is struck by the enemy. Also, I would I would also point out that messianic prophecies almost never appear as just messianic in other words they almost always in the in the old testament prophets they almost always have an initial fulfillment in the prophet's own day as well as a final complete fulfillment in the future in christ and i gave you as an example isaiah seven fourteen. there was actually a young woman who was pregnant in his own day who gave birth which gave evidence of an of an impending uh an impending invasion and uh yet nevertheless in Christ, that prophecy is fulfilled by a virgin conceiving and, of course, giving birth to the Messiah. Well, all right. That was a lot. That was verse one. <laughs> that was verse one. Now, verse two of chapter five. Here we have the messianic prophecy regarding Bethlehem, right, quoted in the New Testament. But as for you, Bethlehem uh, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Interestingly, even Jewish interpreters, uh, going back to this to this uh, the second century and beyond uh, and and forward, have interpreted uh, Micah five two as messianic. So it's not just Christians reading back into the Old Testament Christ. jewish tradition who don't accept jesus as the messiah admit that this is a messianic prophecy interestingly enough Uh, also in the second part of five in in the second part of uh, verse two i mean where it talks about his goings forth are from long ago from days of eternity um that's an interesting phrase. We might initially think, Oh, that speaks to the eternality of the Son, God the Son, you know Jesus is eternality um it It could be it could be, but it probably is not because um because it it's probably a reference to the Davidic line and and its ancient provenance that the Davidic line can be traced back. For days of old, or in the ancient days, and this same phrase, the exact same Hebrew phrase, occurs uh, numerous places in the Old Testament as referring to the Davidic line. So we we don't want to read too much into the passage. That's not there, even though even though it's kind of interesting. Um, now in verse three, uh, here you have some uh, some challenge because it seems to say that Israel will be restored when the Messiah is born. So you have in in verse 3, you said, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor is born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, will return. So this seems to be speaking of the return of Israel from exile at the time of the birth. This is one of those times where we see, kind of like we saw in Joel, where even in the midst of one verse, there's, a, a large gap of time. So in 3a, I would, say, I would argue that 3a is a reference to the first coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. But in the second part of verse 3, where it talks about, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, that seems to be referring to the restoration at the end. That's, that fancy word, eschatological, it just means the end. So uh, the end of days where Jesus comes back. Well, here's what's interesting, right? In Matthew 24, when Jesus is giving his farewell discourse and talking about the the signs of the end, right? The disciples are asking him, what are the signs of the end? What are, when will we know these things will come to pass? And then in Acts 1, they also ask Jesus after he resurrects, his disciples say, will you now restore the kingdom? Is it going to be now? Uh, Why are the disciples so fixated on this? Why are they, why don't they understand that there are two comings? Well, because verses like this, sorry, I'm pointing right at you, uh, but verses like this don't clearly indicate the difference, yet there was, you see, and, uh, it, while there was in rabbinic tradition some, some persons who thought there might be two separate messiahs or there had to be because these, some of these prophecies didn't seem to go together. Um, many people didn't pick up on that. And I think the disciples didn't. And that's why they asked that. Um, well, in 3-4, again, we have, I mean, in 5-4, in we said, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. So here we have, again, the millennial kingdom, this, this great reign of God. However you understand the millennium, you have the reign of God, the consummation of God's kingdom on earth uh, here. <clears throat> now, that continues on. Now you remember we talked about chiasm. I don't, I'm not going to go back through it, but it's, it's again a tool, a literary tool where you have repetition, uh, and, uh, repetition in the text and it usually points to the, the middle part or the high point. Here's what's interesting about this particular possible chiasm. We don't know what the, the high part means. So, so, uh, I'm sorry. I, we, we tried to figure this out. Um, I think I need probably about six months to study this and I'm still not sure I'd ever come up with an answer that I feel fully confident in. But what's interesting is you do see this again, We're, we're talking about the, the kingdom and it's, he will be our peace when Assyria invades, uh, he will be our peace. He, uh, he will deliver us from Assyria. So God is going to deliver them from Assyria and you have these, he will raise up seven shepherds and eight and even eight leaders of men. We tried to count uh just out of curiosity we tried to count the number of leaders from the time of Rehoboam up to the time of Zedekiah or to the time of Hezekiah and it never worked out to seven or eight or even fifteen. It just wasn't it we couldn't we couldn't do the numerology. So we we have to say we really don't know what it means, except that a lot of commentators think that Assyria here is just sort of a a, a a symbolic reference to any kingdom that would come up against Israel and that God will raise up leaders, political and religious leaders who will rescue and lead the people, kind of like the judges were supposed to, would do in, in the book of Judges. I, I'm not fully confident in that interpretation either. It, it may be that this is even a reference to the invasion of uh, of, Jude, of Judah, by Sennacherib, when God himself sends an angel to deliver. And so maybe this raising up of seven shepherds, it might be a reference to Isaiah and Hezekiah and some other people that were really not told about, who stepped up to the plate in in uh, Judah and prayed and fasted. And God is the one, of course, who delivered them uh, because the people uh, turned, and literally it was from Assyria. I think that that's just as plausible as any other interpretation, but at the end of the day, I apologize, we don't really know. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: All right, but what we do know is uh, in in Micah 5, 7 through, through 15, then we still have this messianic this messianic age being referred to. So in seven through nine, you have, you have kind of positive and negative that Israel under this godly leader, under the Messiah will have a positive effect on those who join her, who follow with her following the Lord. It'll be like dew on, you know, on the, on the great gardenias in our front yard. That's a picture of our gardenia. Uh, so shameless uh whatever Except well for
1: my c- horticulture. Yeah, yes.
0: for my wife's horticultural skills yeah uh the negative it'll be like a young lion ripping the nations apart um so uh why because because they reject god and they war against his uh his leader so again this uh so in five tenth, god's judgment is proclaimed on the present ungodliness so again in 5 uh, five, one through nine, we have, prof- uh, prophecy about this Messiah. And then in 10, we're shifting back to the present ungodliness in, among, in and among God's people. And that's going to carry over into chapter six. So in five ten, Micah says, uh, he's, he's preaching against, I think both kingdoms, um, right. Both Israel and Judah and, uh, and God is going to judge them. Carrying over into chapter 6. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, go, ahead,
1: go ahead. <laughs> I'll let you rest. All right. um, so the Lord uh, pronounces a, a lawsuit where he is calling heaven and earth as his witnesses. He's pleading innocent of Israel's charges of wearying them. And instead, he shows how he has uh, put himself out for them. He has given them inspired leaders um, you know Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He has um, delivered them from slavery. He has brought blessing out of cursing, even from the mouth of their enemies. So he refers to uh, Balaam uh, and and Balak, and he just had given them success on every side.
0: You may recall Balaam's the guy that had the tonky, the talking donkey, who <laughs> yeah. asked him why he was beating him on the road because he was going to curse uh, Is- Israel yeah. anyway for, for money too.
1: Yeah, a false prophet.
0: A false prophet. That's right. oh, But then he ended up prophesying the truth and, and gave a blessing.
1: That's right. Okay. Well, that's because of the Lord. Yes. So then it's like Israel is saying, well, what should I do to please God? What's the right way to please God? What will satisfy God? And so then there's a progression of increasingly valuable gifts. Should I bring burnt offerings? Should I bring perfect calves? Should I bring thousands of rams? How about 10,000 streams of oil? Or how about my own flesh and blood to pay for my sin. Come here, Alistair. No, get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Our son's sitting right here. No, and God says, no, no, that's not what I want. I want you to act justly, to do justice. The word mishpat that has come up all over the place in the book of Amos. I want you to love faithfulness or have um uh loving kindness, the hesed, the covenant love of God, and walk humbly before God. Very famous passage, of course, you might have memorized it in VBS or Sunday school or something. But um, Jerusalem has not done that. Israel has not done that. And so they are now going to be Punished with a rod, God says, because of their social and economic injustices, deceptive measures, wicked scales, deceptive weights. So Judah then is going to be punished with a series of curses like we've seen before, what so-called futility curses, like you'll eat, but still never be satisfied. Or you'll have and you'll save up, but you'll lose everything in the war. Or you'll sow, but not reap, etc. So you'll you'll have stuff, you'll do stuff, but not be able to enjoy it at all. And so God is giving them over then to contempt and to scorn. All right. Last chapter. And we're on the
0: last chapter. So there's, uh he begins with this lament for how, how, Evil Israel has become. There's there's no just leaders. There is no loyalty. Family members will turn against family members. Um, Jesus seems to allude to this when he says, "I came not to bring peace, but a sword." Right. And he talks about husband against wife, daughter against mother, etc. This uh, it seems to me that then it, 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 this gives us a, a little bit of a new insight into what Jesus meant then. Right. His his uh, proclamation that he came to bring division to the family—he—he's in doing so, he is castigating Israel's uh, spiritual uh, maturity at the time of his ministry. In other words, just like in Micah's day, the, there's no loyalty. So also, uh, when Jesus comes, there'll be this kind of. Uh, this kind of disloyalty as well. So it's like a, a reference to their lack of spiritual maturity. And then in 7, uh, 7, seven uh, through verse 17, we have this, um, we have this prayer and a, a, a prayer of repentance and for restoration. And, and then you have sort of recalling uh, a future time of restoration. And what's interesting, it seems like this is both a personal uh, a personal uh, prayer or, or sentiment or lament of Micah's, but it also can be understood as he speaking on behalf of uh, Judah or speaking on behalf of Jerusalem itself in a in a personified way.
1: It's like he it's like the prophet represents the nation corporately. Yeah,
0: you know, so he he uh, he recognizes like it's like a recognition of one's own. Sinfulness and one's own unworthiness, but also, uh, you know, like I've, I've done, I'm, I'm turning to do what is right, but I don't expect that my good deeds will, uh, will justify me, um, Okay, so, so like, for example, in 7, uh, 10 through 15, when he's talking about this time of future restoration, there's even this, God, you'll, you'll be vindicated, like in verse 10, my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? Um, this this sounds kind of like uh, the envoy of Sennacherib, who, again, chastised uh, Hezekiah for not surrendering and, uh, blasphemed the Lord by saying, Where is your God? Where is your God now, right? You, your God can't deliver you. Well, here you have it. God did deliver Jerusalem and did deliver them. So, uh, again, there was vindication, uh, for Israel. And then, uh, in 16 and 17, the nations will be ashamed, uh, of, uh, ashamed and they will put their hand to their mouth their ears will be deaf they won't be able to to see or look upon god because of their shame because of how they have treated his, his people, people. Yeah. and so in a certain sense this is also kind of the shame is of of Israel or end of Judah for the way they treat Micah, but then it will also be the shame of the nations who reject the Lord when Israel turns back to the Lord and they refuse to follow suit.
1: So we come to the end and, um, after all of this judgment and sinfulness, um, God again reasserts, uh, through the prophet, his own, um, nature. It's the same way that he has identified himself. To um, Moses on the mountain back in uh, Exodus, uh, I think 32 to 34, and Micah says, "Who is a God like you, removing iniquity, passing over rebellion? So a forgiving God, He does not hold on to His anger forever. He delights in faithful love." There's the word again, the covenant love, hesed. He will again have compassion on us, raham. Remember in Hosea, uh, lo, ruhama, no compassion right? So here's the compassion again, right? You will vanquish our iniquities, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love, hesed, to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. So recalling the Abrahamic covenant that we talked about in the very first um, overview session.
0: So, so in, in, in Micah, we see the gospel, you know, you, I mean, yeah, we have the prophecy of Bethlehem, but we also have this uh, messianic leader who's going to rise up, who will restore, uh, restore God's people. Um, We have the proclamation of God's faithful love, his compassion, his forgiveness, his grace, his, the removal of sin, the cleansing of sin. And it's not through the sacrifice of animals, right? Um, but it's through faith. And we see this uh, in Micah pretty clearly, um, maybe uh, maybe even more so than in many of the other prophets that we've seen up to this point. Um, and so, again, we're back to this, uh, we're back to our claim that, In the prophets and in the Old Testament, how is God portrayed? He's not portrayed as a uh, a moral monster. He's not portrayed as vindictive uh, or petty. Rather, he's portrayed as long-suffering, patient, loving, gracious, desiring to save his people and desiring to have relationship with, again, not just a select few, but all people who he created in his image. Um, again, we see this, the message of the gospel. Well, next week, Nahum. Nahum. So if you want to read ahead, it might be good.
1: No, you have to. It's homework. You okay. have to read it. So
0: there's your homework. She, Dr. Lang said that one. All right. Well, would someone like to close us in prayer? Anyone? This, this group tonight is chomping at the bit, you know. There's...
1: They're they're normally
0: quick to volunteer, but tonight it's been a little slow. Sam, you mind closing us in prayer? I will be glad to. Let's pray.
1: Father, we thank you for this time to come together in such this manner. Father, we thank you that you've provided this for us. We thank you for John and, and Stefano, Father, and for the studies that they have brought us through. We thank you for the evidence of you in Scripture, even in the Old Testament. We thank you, Father, for Jesus. We thank you for making him real to us in our lives, Father, but all through your word. Father, we just thank you and praise you for that. We pray that we would take that with us as we go from this time together, and we pray that you would uh, lead us, Father, to be your servants in all the things that we do. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the blessing of coming together. We pray that you'd be with us and go before us now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.